Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products or to adopt any investment strategy. This week, we have Dominique Meal on the podcast. Dominique spent 20 years working in hedge funds in America, where she specialized in the transportation, technology, retail, and consumer product sectors, including tobacco, corporate and municipal bond securitization, and she led her firm's collateralized loan obligations business. She was also named one of the top 50 women in hedge funds by Ernst & Young in 2017, and was a restructure committee member for U.S. Airlines in the wake of 9-11. She reflects on this time in her recently published memoir, Damsel in Distress. In this episode, Dominique chats with the co-head of the value team, Nick Kirich, on the differences seen between men and women in finance and the ways they make decisions and have risk tolerances, the unique qualities seen in distressed investing, including how to balance the needs of a wide range of stakeholders, which can include judges, regulators, and creditors, and the importance of structure in making decisions like decision trees. Finally, I believe Dominique is also our first guest to quote Jay-Z. Also, guys, we would absolutely love to hear what you think of the podcast. You can contact us on Twitter at The Value Team if you have anything you'd like to say. Enjoy the episode. Today, we're very lucky to have Dominique Miel here with us on the podcast. Uh, Dominique, could you please introduce yourself? Sure. I uh, suspect I'm uh, speaking with you today because I was an investor for 20 years with a hedge fund a large uh, alternative manager called Canyon Capital based in LA uh, that I joined back in 1998, uh, retired from it as a partner about three and a half years ago. And I uh, just published a book called Damsel in Distressed, which is essentially my experience as a female investor in that uh, highly masculine world, uh, as well as a bit of a history of the hedge fund as an industry and its evolution. What a fantastic and interesting time that must have been. I mean, you'll know the, the context for the podcast is that we're trying to explore the process that leads to better decision making. And you know, having you know, been through your book, in your book, you make the point that when it comes to the investment industry, quite often, sadly, male characters are perceived to be better decision makers because they're kind of brash and aggressive. And, and that's kind of, you know, conflated with competence in some way. And, and those characteristics aren't necessarily always embraced uh, by women. But you also make the point that actually, you know, females can have many personality traits that make them much better at decision making under pressure, particularly well suited to the world of investing, you might say. So could you talk a bit more about that? Because it seems like a kind of really important subject. 
I think what uh, the point I'm trying to make in the book is a slight variation of what you're saying, a, a, uh, a nuance on it, if you will, which is that the way the industry of investing, particularly hedge fund, is perceived is as one where all the characters, all the protagonists are those sort of brash, aggressive uh, decision makers, the types of uh, 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 guys that you see in the movie Wall Street, uh, Wolf of Wall Street, or on uh, the TV show Billions. That's the image. And therefore, many women, I dare say most women, are not attracted to that industry. And what I'm trying to um, to alter is that very image and what are the qualities required to be a good investor. And in my mind, as you said, it's not necessarily uh, that you have to be either a math wizard or sort of a sleazy, aggressive deal maker. I found uh, in my experience, in my specialty was uh, distressed investing and restructuring investing, that it required imagination it required ingenuity, it required uh, creativity, uh, being a good listener, all qualities that I think you'd agree are not particularly well represented in those very public descriptions of the business, even in books, I might say, these are not particularly, um, these are not qualities that are well represented. And uh, qualities that are an equal amount in men and women. Uh, so that's sort of the, uh, the, the goal of, one of the goals of the book is to say, look, um, women are equally well-suited to the job because the qualities required are not the ones that are the cliche that you see on TV. I'd be quite interested to know whether or not you thought that 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 image, that kind of perception that many people have of the industry is a major factor in the low number of women that tend to go into the industry. So we obviously have an issue where we don't have a lot of investors today or senior people and we talk about executives and so on and so forth. But it's this kind of enduring problem of we're not attracting you know, women into the industry because perhaps they don't perceive it as, as having qualities that they want to be involved in or that they'll be particularly good at or, or, or whatever it might be. To, to what extent do you think that that drives and proliferates the problem that we have? Uh, to with, a large with extent. Uh, I think yeah. it drives the issue to a large extent. As usual with the uh, a complex question, there are not there are many answers, but one one issue is that the industry is portrayed as um, you know requiring those qualities, and that's not necessarily the truth, and that is definitely not particularly attractive to a lot of people who don't recognize themselves. Um, and one uh, one of the other goals of my book is to have a different voice, right? So. Um, to attract different people to an industry, they need to recognize uh, themselves and they need to see people who look like them. And that's definitely not uh, the case. Yeah. So having a female voice um, is one way to say, look, I had a fantastic time. I had a great uh, career. Uh, I look like you. I sound like you. So you could uh, just as well have a, a thrilling 
uh, adventure in the alternative investment business. I think that obviously this is a theme we're going to come back to again and again in our conversation, and it's a, it's a kind of ma- major aspect of the you know your perspective as you write the book and, and, and your journey through uh, through your financial career. But I'm going to kind of delve straight into some of the kind of distress situations and, and aspects because I think that's an area where as, a, as value investors we're kind of slightly fascinated by that. You know, we're constantly digging around on the the equity side of, of well, in, in extremists, the distress situations. And I'm, many of us are kind of fascinated by what being on the debt side of that's like, you know, looking at it through a very different lens. Right. Um, you know, so when you're dealing with these situations and you're, you know, companies that are filing for Chapter 11 or, or they're just in trouble, there's usually some very negative news flow and negative narratives are kind of pervading around them. How do you kind of communicate with the clients and the potential investors such that that kind of negativity is is seen as an opportunity rather than seen as a way they're going to lose their money effectively? And, and, you know, they continue with their commitment at a point where, you know, there's probably maximum fear. That's a really interesting question. And that's one where I think it makes a big difference um, if you're trading fixed income assets versus stocks, right? Because if you think about it, a bond has um, more or less, if I simplify greatly, a binary outcome. If you're right, you get your money back. If you're wrong, you don't. Um, And of course, there are many um, uh, variations in between, but more or less, that's the construct. Whereas a stock is just the average value of the average investor. So I do think that perception, media flow, news make a huge difference in stock valuations because that is how people will perceive and will value the stock. Whereas a fixed income instrument, bond, junk bond, a loan, um, a securitization, Uh, at the end of the day, has uh, many more layers of complexity. And you can have as many bad stories as you want, but either the cash flow is there to pay you off or it isn't. Um, So I think the, the sort of the basis of the investment and the um, the curve of different outcomes uh, is very different for for a stock and for a bond. So you first have to explain that context to to investors. And then the way I approach um, the the questions from investors uh, who you're right, they see the media uh, news and they they do relate to it and they have questions is, Uh, never to ignore them, to take the facts one by one and answer them with as much detail as as I can. Um, But again, in many, many uh, instances, the reports and uh, the articles that are being written are fairly... um, casual. So they really don't go into all the complexity of a situation. uh, Like if you think of very complex situations like Puerto Rico or PG&E, these have so many layers of legal, regulatory, uh, capital structure, um, uh, 
shenanigans to explain to the investors. So, and that's what I think investors are looking for, right? Your expert opinion yeah. to layer upon those uh, sort of a little bit superficial media uh, reports. But it's, but it's a really, it's a really fascinating part of the investment world because you kind of touched on it there in in equity world we kind of understand well, there's a perception that you're taking risks this is at the higher end of the risk risk spectrum and you should be rewarded for that with a longer term return but bonds invariably just as you said you, you kind of best case outcome is you get your money back and you know when you're looking at this you're constantly saying well will i do a bit better or a bit worse or is this yield about right or should it be too high or, or a bit higher a bit less but this concept of okay, well, I'm actually getting equity-like returns in the bond space, and I'm taking equity-like risk, and things are really spicy, and I might lose everything, even though invariably that tends not to be the case, is a kind of, it almost feels like an oxymoron, something where, you know, the psychology of a bond investor, you've got to be a very specific type of investor, almost kind of able to switch, and, and your risk tolerance to move quite quickly. Is that, you know... Is that why it's quite a specialist area of the market? Why you, you know, it, there aren't tons, you know, the people who are doing this are quite specialist investors? Um, I think it's a, it's a hybrid of bond. And what I'm, when, I, when I say it, I mean high yield or junk bond investing, mm-hmm. stressed and distressed investing is a, is a hybrid between uh, the equity and the regular, uh, you know, investment grade bond, say, because the price at which you buy that uh, that junk bond, that stressed bond, is often very far from par. So there is uh, a, a huge potential upside, but of course, because associated with that. Uh, with that upside is the risk of losing it all. So you do have to have a hat uh, of um, you know high risk, high reward. Uh, but again, the the great difference is that a stock is a very uh, simple financial instrument, right? It's a piece of equity, and it's a stock is no different from another stock. It's a different company, but the construct, the financial security, is exactly the same you know, maybe a different voting right, maybe a different dividend, but it's a very simplistic financial construct. On the opposite end, a bond, a corporate bond or securization is infinitely complex and unique, even in the very liquid market of uh, high yield and traditional leverage loans. There are nuances uh, in covenants, in um, rate uh, construct, in uh, different uh, uh, structure and terms that really can make the difference between a winning and a losing trade. And if you're able to spot that little difference that's going to make give you an edge in certain circumstances, you are a great investor. And that's sort of where um, what needs to be explained to investors, why the particular security that you picked in that particular circumstance or evolving story is going to be in a better spot than all the rest of the capital structure. And that that is a specialized um, skill to to be able to evaluate your position vis-a-vis other layers of the capital structure, often with a legal view in mind, the bankruptcy court, sometimes with uh, a reg- regulatory frame mind if you're 
trading in Puerto Rico, utilities or regulated or the banking industry. And uh, and always with, as with stocks, with the macro uh, uh, environment and micro, meaning the company uh, in mind. So that's a lot of mm. evaluating factors to to uh, to put in your in in your analyst uh, basket. The the thing that comes across really really strongly for me from a bit from the book, but also from what you're saying is is. The simple duration of what's going on here, the time it can take, it can be quite grueling, long, there's many steps, it's about the knowledge of what you're doing, but it, but it is a process. And, and again, just kind of continuing a little bit, you know, we keep touching back on the investor piece, and it's so important about, you know, when these things are going on, and they're taking years, in some instances, long periods of time, and not every decision is going for you. And you've talked, you know, through the book, there's good examples of ones where, um, particularly with the airline example, you know, where injunctions were put in place and things were made very tough for you. And, and, and that kind of stuff is going on about, you know, the constant education piece with your, with your capital providers and bringing them along. Um, you know, what a challenge that can be. Is it simply just about educating them and keeping, staying close to them? Well, I suppose in a way it's not dissimilar to every investment, including stocks, because, um, you know, I, I think many stock pickers don't see their picks going up the next day or the next week. So they do have, a, you know, a time frame for which they expect the stock to to go up. Mm-hmm. And if it if it doesn't go their way, they probably do need to keep to keep in touch with their investors and and explain. But it is particular to uh, uh, distress investing that um, the process looks very much like a game of, of chess, uh, where um, except that there are many more than than two players, but it, if you think of a of a game of risk or a game of strategy where players make their moves and the terrain or the the board changes with with every move, and you have to uh, react, evaluate what was the latest development, and then reassess your position. And by reassessing your position, meaning do you own the right security? Uh, do you own it in the right amount? Should you hedge? Should you sell? Should you buy more? Should you think about uh, joining another group? Uh, but always uh, you should think about who's doing what to whom and when. That's the game. And if you explain this to investors in those terms, I think it, it sort of makes a lot more sense. Um, that along the way, there will be moves against you by maybe a senior creditor when you're a junior creditor, maybe the equity owner, maybe the, the judge in a bankruptcy court, maybe a completely different party who's not even on the balance sheet. Let's say the governor of California, if you're a PG&E or um you know, the the Senate and a new law if you're a creditor of, of Puerto Rico. But yes, that is the, constru- the construct. It's, it's a game of strategy. It takes time. You are not only um, evaluating the environment, but the other players and their moves and everyone's playing to win the biggest piece of a, you know, set... Uh, uh, 
pie, if you will. I mean, do you think it's clear how much work has to go into this? Yeah, because you're doing very deep analysis, particularly in distress situations. You're, you know, you've, you've got to have a legal hat on. You've got to have a financial hat on. You, you know, you've got to look at this through the structuring, company experts, accountants, so on and so forth, kind of forensic. That does take time. And, and you highlight in the book a number of ways, you know, where it took, you know, in many cases, long periods of time to get to comfortable and you were paid off very handsomely actually for those investments. But if I think a bit about the world over the last couple of years, things seem to move incredibly quickly. If I think about what we were seeing, you know, just 18 months ago in the world where we saw on the equity side, one of the fastest equity market collapses in history and one of the fastest equity market bounces in history. And, you know, we, you know, looking at some of the, some, some bonds actually, we, you know, we looked at and, and we bought a couple. Um, but those pricing opportunities were gone, you know, just weeks later. And probably we were pretty lucky, frankly, but if you're the kind of person like yourself who's doing, you know, potentially wants to do enormous forensic work, how do you get comfortable and have things change? You know, the government's bailing people out very quickly, things bouncing very quickly. Is it changing the game or is that just the nature of this time in the cycle and actually over a long enough period of time, 20, 30 years, really things haven't changed? No, I think the game has changed. Um, I think it's changed primarily because of how quickly and massively the Fed has uh, started to intervene. And remember, this is a fairly new development, right? Um, QE, which we talk about all the time, was a fairly novel tool only in 2008. Um, so this idea that the Fed would inject massive amounts of liquidity repeatedly has really taken hold of the market in the last 15 years, if that. Uh, but now it's very much ingrained. And the only question when we have a, a crisis is how quickly and how big. But it's it's pretty much expected that the Fed will intervene. And you know, I sort of coined the phrase that uh, the Fed is the Grinch who stole distressed, and you 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 know pointed it out yourself in around March 2020 at the peak of COVID, we had about a trillion dollars in distressed bonds, meaning bonds that trade over a thousand uh, basis point of spread above Treasury. By June, um, it was back, it, it had mostly disappeared. So you had a, a three, about a three month window to plow money into distressed. By and large, of course, there are still distressed uh, situations, uh, but you know, on average, or or you know, uh, say it simplistically, you had three to four months to to invest. So. It seems to me that the distressed game has become more of a timing uh, investment uh, type than a real, um, you know, analytical um, game, and that's that's very different. And um, you know, the the other thing that's changed is the amount of money chasing uh, distressed uh, opportunities. If you think of the latest fund raised by Oak Tree, it's sixteen billion. You relate that size to the biggest bankruptcy case of 2020. I believe it was Hertz, which had about yeah. 20 billion in assets. 
there is an imbalance that is quite striking, right? If one fund is almost the size of the biggest bankruptcy. Chasing too few right. So what's happening is um, A, the opportunity set comes and goes very quickly. You pointed it out because of the Fed. B, there are num- a, a great number of bankruptcies, but these bankruptcies have tended to be very small. And they've been particularly small versus the amount of money raised. So yes, it does change the game. And it would be uh, optimistic to me to expect the same type of returns that we had in the telecom bust or the global financial crisis of 2008, because their circumstances are so different. So as we're, we're kind of looking forward, you know, with there's an element of, of prediction in everything that we do, even where you're a big believer in mean reversion, you're still predicting mean reversion and you're kind of looking forward. Um, and, and one of the things you talk a lot about, and we, we love this concept within our team, is this issue of trying to assign kind of probability weights. You know, there's not one future, there's multiple futures, and it's like Schrodinger's cat. Until you open the door, you don't know which future exists. All possible futures can, can kind of exist. So could you elaborate a little bit on the mental process of, of analyzing really complicated situations, big tree diagrams where lots of them could happen and there's you know, different probabilities and, and how you assign how do you get comfortable with assigning a reasonable probability to an outcome? First off, I'm a big believer in decision trees. I draw them all the time. I find them incredibly helpful to, you know, disentangle uh, the, the different scenarios. And again, um, you know, I go back to the idea that we're playing a game of, of strategy, a game of chess. So one thing that I find um interesting is to think about um, the great chess players. Um, What they all have in common is, uh, yes, they're genius, but they're also practicing a craft, meaning, you know, if you've watched that uh, um, Queen's Gambit TV show, you see very clearly that they're studying. They're studying openings. They're studying other people's moves and other people's games, and they try to recognize patterns. And that helps them in their game when they see an opponent make a move. And I do think the same goes for the stressed analysts. I've seen that move before. I saw that case in bankruptcy court, or I saw this very company file for bankruptcy or get in, in trouble because of this or that. And I remember this bond, and I remember vendors, uh, you know, uh, asking for payment uh, on delivery, and that squeezed the cash flow of the company. So um, one uh, way to improve your decision tree making and your probability making is experience, just simply doing and remembering and sort of having um, a good a good practice uh, in in the craft of of investing. Um, The other, I think, is flexibility. I am never comfortable with the probabilities that I assign to the different branches because they change. And um, the ability to change your uh, probabilities is one of the hardest things to do, but also the most useful to do, right? Not being anchored to what you thought would happen that may or may not happen or didn't happen. And you sort of can't let go 
of that particular outcome that you really want. That's a discipline that's really, really hard uh, to acquire yeah. uh, because strong convictions, Lucy Howell. Strong, strong probabilities, Lucy Howell. The the line between you know conviction and stubbornness is is very very thin, <laughs> very thin. Uh, the ability, right, and the ability to recognize that you were just flat out wrong and that you have to re-underwrite your, uh, your construct, your mental uh, decision tree is, uh, that's what it's all about, right? That's, that's the job. Yeah, absolutely, I completely agree. Um, it's funny how the things that are strengths can also be weaknesses. It's all about how you use them and, and making them not become hey, a kind of you, you know what the Kanye West song, everything I'm not made me everything I am. I'm not above <laughs> citing rapper. I think I think that's the first time we've had Kanye drop on the podcast. Oh. That's, that's that's probably a first. I I will go and check. That I I, I would first. add. Damn! Here we go again. That's the next line. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let's let's just keep to the clean Kanye lyrics. But yes, that's good. That's good. I love that. Topic. But, but you're um, right. Every every quality is a weakness, right? Conviction, stubbornness. Um, uh, you know, are you principled or are you looking for, you know, the right yeah, outcome? Yeah. Exactly. I, I tell you one of the things that's quite interesting that when I think about, um, think about your probability trees is how do you deal with a situation where you're, you're clear on the probabilities and they're helping you, let's say, but the outcomes are so done. You know, one is you lose a lot of money and the other is you make a lot of money. So it's the classic the probability weighted return of the bet is, is very good. But it's like, let's like say my average temperature is good, but my feet are in the freezer and my head's in the oven. You know, in practical terms, I don't feel great. So how do you deal with that kind of very bimodal outcome? That's the whole game of junk bonds um, is um, there is high probability of a good outcome low probability of a disastrous outcome. And so the mentality should be, look at the downside, really focus on the downside. It's sort of like, uh, again, we're down to thinking of a binary outcome rather than a normal curve, which a stock um, return would, would have. Or if you think of another asset class, risk arbitrage is like that. There's probably on average 90, 95% uh, probability uh, that a deal goes through and you capture the spread, that spread is is not very big, but the 5 or 10% uh, case where the deal is going to be blocked or collapse, you're going to be in a world of pain because yeah. you've shorted a stock that's going up, you're long a stock that's going to drop. Another way to say it um, was a saying from the founding partners of, of Canyon, which I always found funny i don't know where he uh, how he coined it but he always said that a junk bond ate like a bird and pooped like an elephant and then that is, that is a very uh, uh you know that is a very nice image um so you got to focus on the downside and there again i think the psychology of an analyst is it's very difficult to imagine you're going to lose more than 10 to 20 percent in anything, yeah. anywhere, ever. If I, I, you know, at um, 
Kenyon, I had a, a, a team of analysts. And if I ever asked a question of what's the maximum we could lose, I never heard anyone say more than, than 10% ever. No yeah. matter what this, because I think the pain <laughs> threshold is so large that you can't, your mind doesn't even go there. It's funny, though, because I always think about it as a bit like it's the old adage about picking up pennies in front of the steamroller. That is really slowly, but, but you're making very little money. If you get caught, it's all over. So in that respect, would you when you look at an investment, would you if you the probabilities were such that you made a slightly lower risk adjusted return, let's say, from one particular investment, but the chance of going to zero, that probability of the bet was was very, very, very low versus another one where the upside was much bigger, but there was a much more reasonable uh, chance of making zero. And even if the blend of those two got you a higher return, actually, you would tend to think of it as, I want the heads I win, tails I don't lose too much type investment. That would be a probabilistically, you know, there's a kind of cut off there. I think research has shown that um, people are much more sensitive to losing money than winning money. They'd rather win a little less but mm. not lose a lot and i think that's uh at canyon uh how we how we dealt with it that we would rather um have a a you know a more steady stable um you know a high probability gain than pick up a penny in front of a, a, a steamroller mm. which by the way i've done early in my career and lost, and it, it's a searing experience. And if I, I, I think- I remember talking one point about, was it WorldCom? It was yeah. WorldCom, and, and I still remember it some, you know, 25 years um, after. Um, it is a searing experience when you've, uh, you're, and, and of course, in those cases, you feel absolutely sure of the outcome, absolutely mm. sure. So when it turns against you now, not only have you lost money, but you also feel like a complete idiot. So it's sort of a compound suffering <laughs> of, yes. of, of yes. money, money and confidence losing, uh, you know, which is, uh, it, it really teaches you a lesson. And I'm not saying one should not make those bets, but uh, I think they should be sized appropriately. I'm, I think that's great. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to switch tack a bit. And I'm going to talk a little bit about, rather than the investments, a bit about you and think a little bit about, you know, contrarianism, going against the crowd, and, and in some respects, risk tolerance around that. You know, obviously, if you're investing in distress, you're, you're taking the other side of a trade where pre, people are very clear there is a massive problem and you, you think that, you, that there's money to be made there. So do you think contrarianism, though, is something that you, you teach yourself? Or there's something that is quite innate to your psychology, you know, it's kind of nature versus nurture. What's your thought on that? The answer is I don't know. It's very, and I don't, I suppose a bit of both, that that's kind of a way out of the question, I'm afraid, because I really don't know the answer. Um, and I don't know how you would measure the answer. What, what do you think? I, I, I genuinely think it's very, very hard. What I, what I do know is, is that a lot of the people that I work with in the value team, we, we all tend to have a somewhat stubborn streak. I think we'd like to call ourselves contrarians, but really we're just a bit stubborn and quite like, 
quite like an argument, really, being the other side of the trays. Um, one thing that is, you know, we do talk a little bit about is come back to this thing about um, gender stereotypes and women in some instances being perceived as being more risk averse. Um, I, is that something you came across within the industry? It's clearly not something that there's any reason for that to be the case, and we know it isn't the case. But is this something you found, and, and what, how did you deal with that? That is something I've found. There's actually research that does show that women tend to be uh, more risk averse. But what the research also shows, which is usually ignored or not uh not understood, if I want to be very charitable <laughs> about people investment, is that um, they are uh, on a risk-adjusted return, uh, women actually perform better, meaning they may be more risk-averse, but they take better proportionate risk to the return. Mm. And there are actually three different uh, studies that have shown that. And, and the biggest reason of why that is, why men tend to underperform because they're, um, they, they overseek risk is because they overtrade. And so by overtrading, they reduce, they reduce their uh, returns by the friction costs. Uh, so they tend to be overconfident and then they trade to the point of reducing their risk adjusted return uh, on a net basis. And that's very important, right? Because um, I think you'd agree taking a risk for the sake of being risk seeking makes no sense for investment, right? What you want to do is take a risk that is proportional to the return. And there, women are just as good as, as men. But it does mean maybe that um, you have to, uh, there's a bit of a different style to a female investor from a men investor. Maybe she will appear more risk averse, but then she will size more appropriately or be more patient. Uh, and then the net result is that the net return is just as good or not better. That's that's a tough that's a tough argument to make. But again, um, there's been numerous studies. One of which I think was done by I want to say Morningstar or, or Fidelity that came out just a month ago. Um, that uh, that shows exactly the same the same outcome. Um, but it is a I, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it, this is a kind of fascinating area. I, I think actually one of the things that's really interesting is that the stereotype around investors and fund managers and in some respect bankers too is it's it's not even confined solely to to the gender type i think even within the males within the industry there's a perception of what a fund manager should sound like look like you know behave like um and in many ways it's not a flattering one quite often there's a kind of perception of you know being seen as someone who is accountable allows you to kind of claim that you're all knowledgeable and i think it's this issue of um, willing to be vulnerable, to be to willing to admit the things that you don't know as well as the things you do know. And I think it's in some ways the 
having the conversation around gender is allowing us to, to kind of shine a light on this. But I think it's wider than just the gender too. I think there's a real stereotype within the industry as a whole. So Absolutely. Um, and in fact, I, it's coming back to me. I think one of the studies that I was referring to is called Boys Will Be Boys, Overconfidence in Trading. And that says it all. <laughs> that says it all. But there is this image of, um, you know, risk seeking as a, um, an absolute quality in an investor, which I think is wrong. And it was, you know, I was just thinking, um, I don't know if, uh, if you read or listen to Fran Lebowitz, this New Yorker uh, writer who's very funny, but um, she's a smoker and she uh, makes the uh, very funny argument that uh, people should really admire smokers because they're taking risks why are we admiring those, um, you know, mountain climbing, uh, Everest downhill skiers for taking risk when really smokers, they take the risk of dying every day and nobody, you know, people should be clapping and admiring them, of course. And it's incredibly funny because, of course, the missing point is that no one admires risk for the sake of risk, right? Yeah. There's got to be a greater goal when you take a risk. Otherwise, you're just smoking and, and trying to kill yourself. And nobody's going to applaud that. I feel like, guys, this is the same in investing. Just taking a risk doesn't mean you're a good investor. Otherwise, we would all hire smokers. You need to get a good return. I think that's pretty profound about not <laughs> taking risks for the sake of taking risk. It's got to be where the risk is mispriced. That's the point. Exactly. Exactly. Um, that's really interesting. Um, I wanted to, I'm kind of conscious of time, but I wanted to talk a little bit about, in particular, something that, you know, a major part of your career where you, you effectively launched the, the CLO business, you know, back uh, about 10 years ago. And, and you were talking a bit about what it is to build a business, how you develop a business. And how important, you know, back then performance was. And today, in theory, performance should be the driver, you know, the major driver and sales point of, of, of returns. It's a strange industry. It's one where you can absolutely quantify whether or not you're doing what you say you do for clients. But you talk also as well about the kind of rise of, of kind of branding and what that's doing and, 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 you know, how behaviorally that affects people. I wonder if you could talk, you know, elaborate a little bit more on that point. I guess what I'm saying is that at this point, um, hedge funds are a very mature, competitive industry, right? Uh, if you think of any industry going through an S-curve of birth and, and exponential growth and then hitting a plateau, I think we're at the flat part of the S-curve. And in that part, it's very hard to differ differentiate your product and um the way most companies do it is by having a brand, having good marketing, having uh, good investor relations, good compliance. Uh, this is not about performance. And you can see it um, in many ways. Emerging managers have a tough time um, getting traction and getting money, whereas um, there's considerable research showing that emerging managers and small funds have better performance than large ones. To a great extent, scale and size is the enemy of performance. And yet mm -hmm. investors are still plowing money in, into the biggest funds. 
Um, but just in general, if you think of any mature industry being, you know, shoes or sunglasses, you're not buying a pair of sunglasses, uh, you know, let's call it a, a, a Prada pair of sunglasses because they're going to help you see better, right? It's not mm -hmm. about performance. You're not going to be better protected by the sun because it's Prada, but you you buy it because the brand is good. It says something about the product. It says something about you. It's, uh, you are certainly not going to be criticized for wearing uh, product glasses. And to some extent, of course, you know, I'm being facetious, but not completely. That's the state of any mature industry. And that's certainly the state of, of hedge funds. You are buying uh, or you're putting money into oak tree um, not or or you know name a bunch of hedge funds that are above you know 20 30 billion not because their performance is that good because frankly it hasn't but because it's a serious bet it's a bet that ensures uh, you have access to the best uh, compliance, investor relations, marketing, mm -hmm. product lines. In other words, it's because of the brand, not because of the yeah. performance. It's, I mean, but it, it, exactly what we were talking about earlier when, when you were talking about, you know, large amounts of money flooding in and it's, you know, for big firms and for big funds, they have to be big investments to move the needle, but there's now perhaps too much money tasting the size of the investments or the opportunity sets. And, and, the branding perhaps is, is a kind of powerful lure for many people, but in terms of actually being able to be nimble and to execute and generate the performance, it's exactly as you say, in some ways, the antithesis of what, of, of what allows you to do that. So um, it's, it will be interesting. It'll be an interesting 10 years from here. I have to say, um, I, I'm, I'm kind of, we're coming towards the end of our time, but we always have two questions that we ask everyone who, who comes on, on the pod, and, and I wanted to get a chance to ask you those. And, and the first is a you know, pretty standard question, but sometimes leads to interesting answers, which is you know, a book re recommendation if you have one. I mean, I've got to shamelessly plug mine. <laughs> Would you expect anything <laughs> that else? Is a, that is a given. That is a that, given. That, so we, that, we've, I already, mean, we've already I got would... a copy of that. We're going to assume all our listeners have got straight out more copy of that. Well, so you'd be surprised. So let me just say it one more time. <laughs> if you want to have a different uh, voice and a different take on hedge funds, by damsel in distress. Otherwise, I am a voracious reader. Um, if you... If I have to recommend a book about hedge funds, I thought Black Edge was really fun, <clears throat> thriller, mostly about uh, Steve Cohen's um, SAC uh, capital and uh, its fight with uh, with the uh, with the SEC. Uh, very well written, very well researched. But I mostly read non-financial uh, books, from uh, poetry to plays to. Uh, fiction in French and in English. And I'm a big fan of uh, classical authors, uh, mostly because I think, you know, if you find yourself losing money, it really helps to think about something else. <laughs> do, you, do you know what? I mean, there's one, of a, one member on our team who strongly objects to this question when we ask uh, interviewees or whatever, people trying to join our team, because for exactly the reason you say, which is he's obsessed with markets, he's passionate about what he does, 
and he wants to read other things to try and keep himself sane. So, so I think my favorite book has now my favorite book is Kim by Rudyard Kipling. Yes, well, that is a, a classic and a great recommendation. So we'll definitely take that. Um, the second question is is you know coming back to our theme about decision making. So you know, an example of a decision that perhaps ended with the outcome that you didn't want, but when you look back on it, you were able to identify that it was from a, a bad process rather than bad luck, and you were able to kind of change that, obviously, going forward. So I'm not going to give a specific example, um, but, but well, I, I will give you two general examples in specific companies where I thought the process was poor. And what I, I, I've given a lot of thoughts to why the process was poor. And I come back to mainly two factors. When you don't, enough, you don't have enough time and when the, there is a strong desire for demagoguery in your decision or in your outcome, then uh, I find that uh, the process is bad and the outcome is bad. So I was thinking about Puerto Rico and PG&E, where you have many actors, not only the people involved in the capital structures, um, but also the media and politicians. And you suddenly have a, an amalgamation of people wanting different outcomes under heavy time pressure and heavy scrutiny from the public. And that to me has often led to um, decisions that were made for the sake of expediency and for the sake of appearing to be the right decisions to people who uh, were very much outside the decision process and don't have time to understand the complexity of the situation. Um, and there was nothing to be done or nothing to correct. But I think it's, uh, it's not a surprise that Puerto Rico is still in, in, uh, in bankruptcy and PG&E is still having issues is because you know, we, um, there was just not enough time to think through uh, the right outcome. And there was uh, so many eyeballs wanting a simple and sort of easy to digest outcome that uh, unfortunately, I think some decisions were not optimal. And based on what we were talking about earlier and the speed of decision making and the world in which we live, um, it'll be interesting to see if that has a real impact on actually whether worse decisions are made going forward. So D Dominic Miel, it has been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time. For Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.